0: This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycency.org.
1: Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Psalms, chapter 40, verses 1-17. through You can find it on page 468 in the Bibles in your rows if you'd like to follow along as I read. Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, setting my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required, Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch my life away. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well,
0: good morning again, New City. My name's Brian. I'm one of the pastors here, and as you might be able to tell from the white in my beard, I'm old enough to have done some growing up in the 70s and the 80s growing up at this time, uh, you learned very quickly that the most ubiquitous danger uh, in the entire world was quicksand. Uh, the uh, video game Pitfall, if you remember this one from Activision, you were always swinging over the um, quicksand. The old Adam West Batman. Zach had some pictures last week, so I feel like I needed to have some pictures. The old Adam West Batman. Um, the Gilligan's Island. The Princess Bride, that was actually lightning sand. The uh, Blazing Saddles, they were teasing about it, making fun of it, of course. And then they showed Jumaji. You could probably think of several of your own. Quicksand um, was everywhere. We were always on the watch uh, so as to not step into quicksand. By 2010, though, kids were not buying. In, in an interview with Daniel Engber, Engber, a boy named Zayd told him this. He said, I think people used to be afraid of it, That is quicksand. Uh, His classmates nodded. It was before we were born, explains Owen. Maybe it will come back one day. (laughs) So by 2010, uh, kids were no longer afraid of this. The quicksand trope apparently started in about the 1930s. It peaked in the early 60s. And then by the 80s, we were still beating that dead horse uh, with our tongue in cheek. Ironically, um, I found out this week that quicksand is not only incredibly rare, uh, but not all that dangerous. Apparently, you can only ever sink to about your midsection, um, and so then you just sort of uh, starve to death, which is quite boring. Um, the Mythbusters and Bill Nye the Science Guy debunked this, and yet, uh, if we haven't had enough, there's a movie coming out this year called Quicksand, do you guess, and in which the protagonist gets stuck in quicksand. And are in there for, like, the duration of the movie. Um, I guess that's what happens when there's a writer's strike. I don't know. Uh, Well, In our text for this morning, Psalm 40, the psalmist David finds himself in the quicksand of life, so to say. But maybe before we dive into the mud with David, um, we should take a quick step back and talk about why we keep coming back to the psalms nearly every summer. We're starting a new series this summer called Summer Psalms. Why do we do this? If you've been around for a while, you know almost every summer we come back. To the Psalms. So, first of all, the Psalms is a big book. We preach mostly uh, Lectio Continua around here, which means we just go right on through books of the Bible, but we usually do this in chunks, right? So, for instance, we just finished Luke 9 last week. We started Luke in Advent of 2021 and continued through Epiphany of 2022. We came back to Luke last September um, with Luke 6, and then in the new year, we looked at Luke 7 and 8, and then this summer, Luke chapter 9. So we kind of do these in chunks. You know, to cover the Psalms, it takes time. There's 150 of them, about 2,500 verses. To read the Psalms straight through would take about four and a half hours, I'm told. So we want to work our way through the Psalms and do so in chunks, in smaller series of Psalms. If we did them all together, we'd have 150 weeks of Psalms. And this summer, we're in the 40s. So secondly, the Psalms teach us how to pray. I don't know that I've ever met anybody who feels totally competent and sufficient and successful in their praying, and the Psalms are probably the best tool at our disposal outside of the Lord's Prayer to teach us how to pray. Tim Keller says this, we are, in a sense, to put them inside our own prayers or perhaps to put our prayers inside them and approach God in that way. In doing this, the Psalms involve the speaker directly in new attitudes, commitments, promises, and even emotions. That is, the Psalms give us the vocabulary of prayer, how to talk to God, how we can express what's going on. Jesus himself quoted the Psalms more than any other book of the scriptures. The Psalms were Jesus's prayer book. So, Not only did the Psalms give us the vocabulary of prayer, and not only were they Jesus's prayer book, but for the entire history, of the church, the saints throughout the ages have been praying the psalms. There's an old tradition of praying the psalms through every month, psalms every morning and evening for 30 days. We have these bookmarks that we made up a few years ago. There's a bunch of them out on the table in the commons um, that help you do that. Thirdly, the psalms help us with our emotions. They capture our hearts, our affections. They teach us to express emotions and they help us heal. You might be thinking, emotions, emotions, feelings, you know, maybe you were taught that the feelings are the caboose of the train and they can't be trusted, unless you think this is un-Presbyterian. The Presbyterian, John Calvin, called the Psalms an anatomy of all parts of the soul. Listen to him, he says this. I've been accustomed to call this book, I think not inappropriately, an anatomy of all the parts of the soul, for there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has here drawn to the life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. The Psalms express every human emotion that we can feel. If you feel it, the Psalms at one point or another express it. And more than just expressing our emotions, the Psalms help us heal and grow. Listen to how 3rd century church father Athanasius put it. He says, whatever your particular need or trouble from this same book, the Psalms, you can select a form of words to fit it so that you not merely hear and then pass on, but learn the way to remedy your ill. And as a parting shot, and then we'll get into Psalm 40, commentator Christopher Ash levels this call. He says, let us bring the Psalms out and revel in the wonder they offer a fullness and richness of relationship with God undreamt of by so many of us half-starved Christians. Can we do that this morning and over the next few weeks? It wasn't entirely rhetorical. You can respond if you're willing. Can we come to the Psalms and revel in the wonder that they offer All right, let's do it. So, back to the quicksand with David in Psalm 40. You can turn there if you'd like, because we'll be meandering through. If you're new to the Bible, you can flop it open to just about the middle, uh, and you'll find it. Your your likeliness of of hitting it is pretty strong, because it's the largest book of the Bible right in the middle. So, verses one through five are what God has done, we might say. Now, it starts with David. It says that he waited. How did he wait? Patiently. For whom did he wait? The Lord. It's what we just sang, right? I waited patiently for the Lord that's what David did. But then from there on out, it's kind of about all what God did for the next little bit. First, God inclined to him or turned to him and heard his cry. So imagine someone name, someone's name being called and then they turn and listen. That's what David says the Lord did for him. David said God rescued him from the mud pit. It's a quicksand, right? The pit is described as a, a slimy pit, a pit of destruction, a horrible pit, a pit of despair, desolate, lonely, God lifted him out. You know, I can't help but think of uh, baby Jessica. If you're my age or older, you certainly remember this. Right, it was October 1987, Jessica McClure, 18 months old, toddled into a well in her aunt's backyard in Midland, Texas. It took 56 hours for rescuers to dig her out. The whole thing was covered by CNN, incidentally. Many folks mark this as the beginning of the 24-hour news cycle because that event put CNN on the map. Nobody watched it before that. It was all boring stuff. But a baby stuck in a well, now, you know, people will tune in and they watch that 24-7. It's excitement. So spoiler alert, they rescued her. But maybe that's a helpful image to think about what David is saying God does for him here. God lifts him out of the well, the miry bog that he is stuck in. God lifts David out of the well. And then... Verse 2, God sets David's feet on a rock, back on solid ground. It's like kissing the solid ground after being rescued from quicksand, right? Solid ground, feet on a rock. And similarly, it says God made his steps secure, gave him a firm place to stand. Now, it's a bit of an aside here, when I first started reading the Psalms, uh, and I heard someone call them songs or poems, I was kind of confused. Um, it looks like it may be in our Bible the way that it's formatted, but there's no rhythm uh, or rhyme at least not in most english translations uh, and then i found out that they don't rhyme really in the original language of hebrew either so in english poetry right, we love rhythm and rhyme we learn them from super early on in nursery rhymes like mary had a little lamb fleece was white as snow everywhere that mary went and the land, her lamb land was sure to go. Yeah, we we like the rhythm and we like the rhyme. Right? We learn this. And then maybe later on, we learn how Shakespeare wrote an iambic pentameter, or we learn that a haiku has 17 syllables with five, seven, five, three lines, you know, those kinds of rules uh, for those kinds of poetry. Well, in the Psalms, the primary feature of poetry is called parallelism, which, put over simply, uh, is simply the repeating or expanding of an, of an idea from one line to another. So for example... In our psalm this morning, we see it in verse 5. It says, you, Lord God, have done many wonderful things, first part, and then you have planned marvelous things for us. Wonderful things done, marvelous things planned. It's the same thing said in a slightly different way, right? You get the idea. That's parallelism. So I just found that helpful to understand the psalms as poetry. Anyway, back to what God does in verse 3. God put a new song in David's mouth, gave him a song of praise, to sing, And this is no small thing here, right? Uh, no one likes to sing when times are really rough. Right? God freed David up to sing again. In verse 5, that we just read again. It says, you, Lord God, have done many wonderful things, and you have planned marvelous things for us. No one is like you. I would never be able to tell all that you have done. David is rehearsing and celebrating all the wonderful things that God has done in his life. He says it so much that he couldn't possibly name it all. And we don't have to really wonder why David would want to rehearse and remember what the Lord has done. It's because we forget. We can be so forgetful of what God has done for us, especially when we feel like we're stuck in a well. We can zoom out, right? And we can see the cyclical pattern in the history of God's people in the Hebrew scriptures. The king and the people follow God. Things are good. They get comfortable. They get cocky. They start to forget God, and then they keep slipping, and then they really forget God. They do exactly what they want. Things get ugly, and then they turn to God as sort of a last resort, having forgotten all about him until they're in desperate need. Then they repent, then they remember, then they turn to the Lord. The cycle starts all over again, right? And then when we are in the quicksand at the bottom of a well, it's really easy to forget what God has done in the past. We'll move on to the next section here in just a second. But I suppose the application for this part could be remember what God has done. Be ruthless in noting and remembering what God has done in your life. Don't forget it. Write it down. Keep a journal or write it down in your planner the way that God has worked in your life. Rehearse it. Remember it. Sing it. Because we so easily forget. You know, Write your own version of David's Psalm here, he inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog and set my feet on a rock. How has God done that for you? And if you're in a place where the well is so deep and the quicksand is so virulent that you can't remember what God has done in your life, read about it in the Psalms. Turn to this Psalm, make this Psalm your own. What specific pit has God lifted you out of in the past? What mud and mire has he rescued you from? Remember when he put a new song in your mouth when you were well enough to sing. David's in pretty good shape here so far as remembering God's rescue and he keeps going, opening his mouth. In verse six, David drops a bit of a bomb here. He says, in sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. Now the expected way this should have worked is this. David waiting, trusting, God rescuing, and then David would worship him by offering sacrifices. But here David said, God does not require or delight in sacrifices. And then tucked in there is this really weird um, image that gets a little lost. You may have a footnote in your Bible where it says, uh, you know, ears, you have you open my ears. It says, ears you have dug for me, is kind of the, the image there. So imagine a human head with no ears. Right, or ears clogged with so much gunk that the person is functionally deaf. That's what David is saying is, is happening here. So then God makes ears where there are no ears, literally digs ears in a human head without ears. So listen to Eugene Peterson. He said, What good is a speaking God without listening human ears? So God gets a pick and a shovel and digs through the cranial granite opening. Uh, a passage that will give access to the interior depths into the mind and the heart. Or maybe we're not to imagine a smooth expanse of skull, but something like wells that have been stopped up with refuse, culture noise, throwaway gossip, garbage chatter. Our ears are so clogged that we cannot hear God speak. God, like Isaac, who dug again the wells that the Philistines had filled, redigs the ears trashed with audio junk. God doesn't want bulls or goats, sacrifices, or burnt offerings here. He wants listeners. And he's willing to do it himself. As Peterson says, take a pick and a shovel and dig through the cranial granite to open up access to the depths of our souls. God wants and makes listeners who do what? Look at it in verse 8. Who delight to do God's will and cherish his law in their heart. And then in verses 9 and 10, describe a sort of sacrifice, though not of animals. The sacrifice is one of speaking up. David writes this, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. if we were challenged to remember from that first section, here we're told to take that remembering and say something. Tell the story. Proclaim what God has done. (laughs) Sometimes remembering all by ourselves helps, right? Sometimes just doing it ourselves. Sometimes we need the storytelling of how God works in other people's lives, right? How God is at work among us David seems to suggest that keeping the stories of, of God's goodness and faithfulness to ourselves is not good here. In a sense, we must say it aloud. I think of the old Fanny Crosby hymn where we sing, this is my story, this is my song, praising my savior all the day long. So I suppose the application here we might say is, speak now, testify, talk about God's goodness. Not only is it good for your own soul, it's also good for the church family. You can encourage someone else through telling the story of what God has done in your life. Don't hoard the stories of God's goodness and faithfulness and rescue, share them. Now, before we get into the last bit here, it's worth stopping to note that verses six through eight here are attributed to Jesus in the New Testament book of Hebrews. That's in Hebrews chapter 10, verses five through seven. So, The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus fulfills the scripture. David's talking about himself, but this passage is really about Jesus, the true and better David, the king. Right? Jesus is the once and for all ultimate sacrifice, and the one who loved God's word, obeyed God's word, was the word made flesh, and the one who did God's will perfectly. As the writer of Hebrews says about this passage, he says, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Like in verse 11 here in Psalm 40, God has not restrained his mercy, but poured it out on Jesus, his steadfast love and his faithfulness, ever preserving him. And therefore, for those who are in Christ, God will not restrain his mercy from us, but rather preserve even us with his steadfast love and faithfulness. That, friends, is good news that we can dwell on and remember and speak of. May God take his pick and shovel and give us ears to hear and open our mouths to declare that goodness. And then lastly, in verses 11 through 17, we find David back in the pit. We find David back in the pit. Now, this psalm is actually a bit backwards from what we typically find in the psalms. There's all kinds of psalms in different formats, but typically, right, we would find this, the psalm goes like this. It starts with the struggle that the psalmist finds himself in, the lament, then the way that God rescued, and then a section of praise. Here, we kind of find the opposite. We see praise for rescue at the beginning, and then a section of lament. Look at David's situation here in Verse 12. David said, evils beyond number have encompassed him. His iniquities have overtaken him to the point where he finds himself blinded by his sin. He says his sin is more numerous than the hairs on his head, some kind of a addiction to his sin to the point where it's more than he can count. He can't stop. And he says his heart is failing. I know some of us here this morning find ourselves in situations like this, surrounded by all kinds of external circumstances, hurting or broken or estranged relationships, sickness and disease, economic hardship, grief and loss and sorrow, depression, anxiety, fear. There is no end to the hard stuff that life throws at us. And then I know there's some of us here who aren't necessarily beset by things external to us but we're being eaten up by our own sin, right? Sometimes it's our own sin and disobedience that breaks our heart and makes us blind. Like David says here, my sins have overtaken me and I cannot see. He calls himself poor and needy in verse 17. That's part about David confessing his sins and being blind and back in the pit reminded me of this video that was going around on, on Twitter or whatever it's called today. Um, and it's pretty much a perfect illustration of the Christian life as David describes it here. Poor, poor little sheep stuck in the pit and... <laughs> yep, that's us, folks. That's it. That's the Christian life back in the pit. <laughs> Just, we sit here all day and watch this. But that's not the perfect illustration of sometimes the Christian life, right? We are out of the pit, Back in the pit. Sometimes it's from external circumstances. Sometimes it is our own unwillingness, cluelessness, and disobedience and sin that puts us back in the pit. David has all kinds of external pressures squeezing him, plus his own sin messing things up. Does that sound familiar? And so in this lament, David cries out to the Lord for help, for deliverance, for justice. That's in verse 13 and following. I suppose what we can take away from David being back in the pit is Don't be surprised when you find yourself back in the pit. Don't be surprised when you find yourself back in the pit. Don't be surprised that even after you've been rescued by the Lord and things are good, and you have stories of God's faithfulness to tell and remember, at some point you end up back in the pit. And so we cry out to God again for help, for deliverance, for him to hear us. We need rescue again and again. One commentator noted Though many could see how the Lord saved in the past, now the psalmist cannot see beyond all his problems. God's saving righteousness was in the psalmist's heart, but now his heart has failed him. This psalm teaches that the Torah in the heart does not prevent sin, nor does the experience of salvation spare us from the need of God's help. Don't be surprised when you're back in the pit because life is a roller coaster with ups and downs, loops and turns. Or if you prefer a hiking metaphor, it's a long trail with switchbacks where you cover a lot of miles back and forth and back and forth, but not a lot of progress up, at least not as much as you would like. Jesus himself has told us that in this life, we will have trouble. What does he offer us? Not necessarily escape from the troubles, but he offers us his peace and his presence and the promise that in the end, we get to be with him. And the Apostle Paul, too, describes being back in the pit of his own sin and disobedience this is in Romans 7. I remember reading this passage for the first time. I was so encouraged because I had somehow come to think that to be a Christian meant that you had to be perfect and that you never struggled and you never sinned. And certainly to be a Christian means that our desire for sin should be dying, right, and that we should be sinning less As we grow in our life, but but listen to what Paul says. This is in Romans seven. Paul says, "I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I don't do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. He talks about this war between the spirit and the flesh." And he goes on like that, eventually crying out, who will rescue me from this body of death? Sometimes the Christian life, battling sin, trying to hold on under external circumstances that feel crushing. It feels like we're living in a body of death. So what did we do with that? we look back at verse one of Psalm 40. What did the psalmist do? He says, I waited patiently for the Lord. Wait patiently for the Lord Right, but that's hard. Tom Petty was right. The waiting is the hardest part. Besides, what does that even mean to wait patiently for the Lord? Right? One commentator is helpful. Christopher Ashe says, to wait patiently means to pray and to trust the promises of God and to do so day after day. To wait patiently means to pray and to trust the promises of God and to do so day after day. If that's a little esoteric, and difficult to take action on. One ruthlessly practical and specific way you can pray and learn to trust the promises of God day by day is to pray the Psalms. You know, I find it interesting here that verses 13 through 17 are essentially Psalm 70 verbatim. You can turn there if you want and compare. Psalm 70 is Psalm 40, verses 13 through 17. So either Psalm 70 was snipped from Psalm 40 and used on its own, or probably more likely, right, David here in Psalm 40 is borrowing from his Psalm 70 to give himself words to pray. It seems like David found himself in a spot where he didn't even have the words, so he's like, you know what, I'm just gonna borrow from this other prayer that I have and use that today. If David used his own Psalm when he was back in the pit and wanting for words to pray, and if Jesus himself prayed and quoted the Psalms more than any other scripture, like Psalm 22 when he was on the cross, then I have to believe that praying the Psalms would be immensely helpful to you and me as well. So make the Psalms your prayer book. You can pray them one by one, like we do in our readings and prayers in the bulletin. You can also have those texted to you every morning, Um, or you can pray morning and evening Psalms using the, the bookmarks that we have, the traditional Psalms through the month, or just go at your own pace but especially when you find yourself in the pit again, like David, go to the Psalms. Let them give you the words, the vocabulary to pray. So our simple takeaways from this morning are remember what God has done. Remember what God has done. Speak now, talk about what God has done. And then thirdly, make the Psalms your prayer book, especially when you're back in the pit. So as we prepare to come to the table to to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're gonna uh, sing again here in a minute, but let me pray through Psalm 40, the part that is also Psalm 70 as uh, kind of our great prayer of lament and confession as we prepare to come to the table. Let me pray. You, O Lord, will not restrain your mercy from us. In fact, we see your mercy demonstrated and manifested in Jesus. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve us, and we know this, because your steadfast love and faithfulness preserved Jesus evils beyond number encompassed him he was betrayed by a dear friend abandoned by his other friends he was beaten mercilessly and unjustly by the ones who were supposed to be just he was unfairly tried and inexplicably was punished though he wasn't guilty he was executed though innocent though he was without our though he was without sin our iniquities overtook him And when we consider what our sin did to Jesus, our hearts fail. Father, many of us find ourselves in the pit again, even this morning. We're weary and sad and running out of steam. Some, because the stuff of life is crushing us. Others of us are stuck in the slimy pit and the quicksand of our own sin. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver us. O Lord, make haste to help us. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether. seek to snatch away the abundant life that we find in Jesus Christ. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in our hurt and the harm of any of those who are needy and vulnerable around us. Let those be appalled because of their shame who seek to trick, deceive, wound, or harm. But may all who seek you, and Lord, let us be a church family who seeks you. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. May we love your salvation and say continually, great is the Lord. And do open our lips that we might declare your praise and tell of all the wonderful things you have done. For we confess that we are often found poor and needy. But you, Lord, think of us. Keep us in mind. You are indeed our help and our deliverer. Do not delay our God. Come quickly. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.